the uh, start of the service. So I'm not sure if you were welcomed yet. Were you welcomed? Was there like an official start? No, okay. No, yes? Hmm. All right. I was just across the road because there's a, there's a, a lovely course happening over the road at this time on a Sunday evening um, where we're reaching out to um, refugees who have come here to Freiburg. So I was just over there and I missed the, the beginning. So I'm not sure if you're welcomed or not, but if you weren't, welcome to Church at Five for this Sunday evening. It's great to be here with you. Um, in case you don't know me, my name is Sam and I'm one of the pastors here at, church, at uh, Calvary Chapel Freiburg. And uh, I'll be preaching tonight, giving Brandon a week off. Um, Brandon and I, together with Alex Gaznik, we spent the last week at a pastor's conference. We had a really encouraging time. And it's interesting, um, considering the text we're looking at tonight, that we were encouraged um, there to make sure that we do, that we do um, set before our churches the, the full counsel of God. That is to say, all of God's word, all of God's message, the entire message that God has given to humanity in the Bible. We have before us tonight a text in Galatians 5, which might seem at the outset to be uh, what we might term a negative text because it's dealing with negative issues. But I think it is a text, um, well, I should say it this way, we need warnings. Warnings are good for us. So this is a warning text uh, in some ways. Not every single sentence, and we'll see that as we go through, but it does contain um, a strong warning to us. So it's my prayer that the Holy Spirit tonight is at work amongst us to convict us where we need to repent, where we need to come before God and ask forgiveness for our sins and repent of our ways. But we'll see, um, we'll see that as we, as we get into the text. So we're in Galatians chapter 5, and we'll be reading the verses 13 through 21 tonight. So you can open up your Bibles. I'll be reading from the New International Version, and I think the text will also be up on the screen behind me for you to follow on. And this will be the probably... I think I can give this away, the third last message from the book of Galatians. That means next week um, we'll get to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. So it'll kind of balance out the warning that we hear tonight. But it's important that those things don't uh, go against each other, rather they fit together in Paul's theology and in the ministry of the Holy Spirit at that time in the church in Galatia and indeed in all churches since that time. And then there'll be another message the week after that, on Galatians chapter 6, and then who knows what will happen after that. Maybe someone knows. But So, I'll just read the, the text now, Galatians five thirteen through 21. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature or the flesh. Rather, Serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature or the flesh. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, 
hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Yes, yeah, so a warning text this evening. So I've divided this text up into three, um, three main points, and we'll focus on each point, each, a couple of verses, and we'll make some comments on those verses to see what, um, what this text is saying to us, what this text means. So Paul begins, it's, it's worth casting our eyes back to, to the beginning of this chapter to see with what stirring, strong words Paul begins this chapter. He says in uh, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Set us free. So he's talking about the church. He's talking about the community of believers, people who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ, who believe in Jesus Christ at Galatia, in all the different churches of that province. Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, you Christians, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And Paul uses this very um, evocative picture of a yoke. Everyone know what a yoke is? A yoke was a piece of wood, a heavy piece of wood that would be put against, across the back of the oxen in order to plow the ground. So Paul is saying you don't want to be like that where you've got this heavy burden on your back. And he, and he says this is the burden of slavery. So that's how he begins this chapter. Do not let yourselves be burdened by the yoke of slavery. And we saw last week, um, with um, the message last week, what the ramifications of that are to return to slavery. And the message is on, on the net. If you, want to, if you weren't here last week and you want to listen to it, it's called The Offense of the Cross, and you can go and listen to that. But rather, as Paul says, through the Spirit, in, in Galatians 5 verse 5, rather than returning to slavery... We eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. So that's how Paul starts this chapter, and he's continuing on that theme in these verses. It's like, um, it's like theme music, really. If you, if you know about how music works or how symphonies work, there's often a theme. Then you hear it at the beginning, and then you hear slight variations of it all the way through, and then you hear it again in the conclusion. That's kind of what's happening here. Paul said at the beginning of chapter 5, in very strong words, you Christians, don't let yourselves be put back under a yoke of slavery. And now he's giving a variation on that theme here in verse 13, as he says, you're called to be free. So this is a text tonight that is talking about, as we often um, characterize it, life and death things, like war, uh, war and peace, freedom and slavery, the spirit and the flesh. So I've titled this message... Um, or to be honest, it was titled for me, Life by the Flesh. So of those three sermons through this, uh, through this chapter, uh, the last one was about the law, this one is about the flesh, and next week is about the spirit. So this is about life by the flesh, which is not a term that's actually used here directly in the text, um, although we see it in the last verse, in the warning that Paul says that those who live like this, either, so that is, um, live by the flesh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So three points this evening. The first point is in, verse, is in the verses 13 through 15. 
So let's focus on those for a moment. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge a sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. That's how it starts. Paul says here, do not let yourselves be burdened, going back to 5 verse 1, by a yoke of slavery. So what is Paul talking about here with this yoke of slavery that he then picks up again on here in verse 13? He's talking about the law of Moses. It's important to recognize that. He's talking about something given by God at Mount Sinai to the ancient Israelites, the law of Moses. And he's saying to live under the law of Moses is, to, is akin to having a yoke of slavery on your back. And if, we've been, if you've been here every week and following through the letter, you can, you can sense that this letter of Galatians is a very passionate letter, that Paul is, I can almost imagine him dashing it off really quickly as he's heard news of what's happening in Galatia and he's worried. And at several points his worry comes through as he says, I'm really perplexed about you guys or who has bewitched you, who has um, deceived you. And he's obviously concerned that having, we saw that in the uh, last chapter, that having begun by accepting the, the, the gospel of grace, by accepting the gospel of grace that our sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ and we have faith in him, that they have now began to, began to backtrack in this church and now begun to accept more and more the law, the law of Moses. And so Paul says, that's putting yourself back under a yoke of slavery. Don't do it. So that's what Paul is talking about here. We're called to be free, not Slaves. The opposite of being free is to be a slave. And Paul is very concerned here that we as Christians are called to be free. So that affects each one of us here tonight. Your personal calling as a Christian is not to be burdened under any yoke of slavery, whether it's the law of Moses or any other yoke or any other bondage of slavery. You are called to be free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So, As a believer in Christ, to return to the law of Moses, to go back to the Old Testament law and to to attempt to obey it, and we'll talk about what that means in a minute, is to place yourself under a yoke of slavery. The law here is like a slave master. So what's what's Paul getting at here? Well, we'll go on in a moment to discuss um, verses 14 and 15. But first we need to make very clear here that Paul is talking about, I've mentioned it just before, But my notes say it here again, the law of Moses. Not any law, not the concept of law, not Roman law, not Greek law. He's not making a general comment on laws that govern society or Greek law or Roman law, any of that. But he's making a specific reference to uh, the covenant of the law of Moses in the Old Testament as that was used by God in the history of his people. Okay? So Paul is saying that we've been freed from that. And if you turn back to, verse, uh, to chapter 3, just to read these verses with you again so that they're fresh in your mind, Paul writes in Galatians 3.10 and following, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live not by the law but by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So that's how Paul sees the law. 
which means that as Christians, we're no longer under the law of Moses as a system, uh, a juridical system. So I think this is a really important principle for every Christian to understand. It's a really important principle for us to understand. It's like, let me give you an illustration. If I'm here in Germany and I commit a crime, then I'm under the law of Germany. And I'll be tried here in the courts according to the law of the land. But if I drive uh, 25 k's west and cross the river into France, then I'm no longer under the law of Germany. It has, no, uh, it has nothing to say to me anymore. It doesn't apply and it's completely invalid. And that's the principle that I want you to understand here. As Christians, we have been freed from the law of Moses. It no longer applies to us. It has no validity for us as a juridical system, as a system by which we're judged and under which we live under the power of or the function of. So that doesn't mean that if we look back to the Old Testament, we can't see principles for life, principles for blessing that God put into his law. As Paul says in other places in the New Testament, the law is by no means evil. He says that in Romans 6 and 7. But he says what the law, he says here in Galatians, how the law functioned, it functioned until the time of Christ and now there's no more need for it. So remember that you're not under the law of Moses. Now, how does that apply to your life personally? I think this is, I don't know if everyone thinks this way. There might be differences to how you live the Christian life. But I think for sure there are people, or it's a tendency among some Christians, or many Christians, to, yeah, to live kind of as if we have to do good works in order to... Um, for God to approve of us or for God to like us or for God to accept us or for us to maintain our relationship with God. You might have got the idea, okay, Jesus, he forgave me my sins. I, when I, I, you know, I, I became a Christian 10 years ago, I confessed my sins and I'd been living a sinful life, but now I confess my sins and he, he kind of accepted me, but, but now I am a Christian, so now I've got to kind of live up to that. I can't, can't, let, the, I can't let the team down. Or you might think, your whole life, I grew up in a Christian family and I have to reach this level, attain this level. And oftentimes, this kind of thinking is connected with the Old Testament because we see there the law. Specifically, we see something called the Ten Commandments. Everyone knows what the Ten Commandments are. There are many signs still in many buildings um, around the Western world. And that has caused... Um, that has caused many of us to view a Christian life as a life that um, obeys the Ten Commandments. I think if you ask many non-Christian people, what does it mean? And I've read, this, I've read examples of this myself. What's the essence of Christianity? They would say something like to live a good life or to obey the commandments, to do good. That's the essence of a Christian life. But what I'm saying with this the Ten Commandments are part of the law of Moses. And so, they are also a yoke of slavery from which you have been freed. You are not required to keep the Ten Commandments. You're not required to keep the Ten Commandments. And Paul's warning you, don't go back to that situation where you're having to fulfill those commandments is the basis of your relationship with God because it's a yoke of slavery. 
We also, we also have to say, as, as Gentiles, as non-Jews, I take it most, if not everybody here is not Jewish, that as non-Jews, we were never under the law of Moses anyway. It wasn't our forefathers, our ancestors who were assembled at Mount Sinai who agreed to the covenant with the Lord. Our ancestors were probably uh, hunting in forests in, in cold Europe at that time, or maybe moving down uh, through Iran and into the northern area of the subcontinent, or maybe migrating east towards the Orient. So we were never under this covenant. There wasn't a covenant between our fathers that under, under which we now continue to live. But Paul sees as very real the danger of us now as Christians of coming into the people of God that we might place ourselves under this system that we were never a part of. And if you look at verses 2 and 3, you'll see his concern here. He says, mark my words, which means listen very carefully here to what I say. I, Paul, even mentions his name to tell you it's with my Pauline authority that I'm telling you this. I tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, that is if you take on the the uh, the sign or the yeah the the sign of belonging to the covenant people under the law Christ will be of no value to you again i declare to every man who lets himself be lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law so paul is concerned about this that we don't want to go back under slavery so, to clarify, we're not under any obligation by the law of Moses. We're not obligated to keep the Ten Commandments or indeed any law from the law of Moses. We are free. We have been set free by Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law. Because it's important here that Paul never talks about this part of the law or that part of the law. And if you read a Christian literature, you'll often hear people talking about different parts of the law. They'll talk about the ceremonial part of the law, which was the priests bringing the sacrifices to, uh, the, in the, into the temple or before that into the tabernacle. Or they'll talk about the moral law, which is laws, for example, on how to live a moral life, such as do not commit adultery. Or they'll talk about the civil law, which were penalties for uh, civil infractions in the Old Testament people. But Paul never talks about that. He always talks about the law as one thing. It's the law. And it either stands or it falls as one thing. And Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law. So what does this mean for us? We get a hint in Galatians 6 in the next chapter in verse 2 where Paul writes, carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. That's one reference. There are a number of other references in the New Testament to something called the law of Christ. And the way I understand the New Testament is, or the, the two Testaments together, is that the law of Moses has ended, has been fulfilled, and it is no longer required. And to live under that law is slavery. Now we have been set free to live under the law of Christ. But the law of Christ operates in us by the power of the Spirit. And it's a completely different motivation, a completely different power for how we live our lives. Some of the commandments, I said before, you don't have to keep the Ten Commandments. And some of you might have been like, whoa, 
Never heard that in a church before. But I, I stand by it. But some of the commandments have been translated into this new law. So, the command, of the Ten Commandments, most of them will show up again, except for one, in the law of Christ. That is, when the Old Testament law says, you shall have no other gods before me, or you shall not murder, these two principles are part of the law of Christ. But the motivation is a completely different one. We're not um, honoring God or not murdering because we're trying to obey the Ten Commandments at Sinai. But rather, we're doing it out of the power in us put there by the Holy Spirit as we follow our Saviour, Jesus Christ. As a, an, an old commentator writes, What need is there now of the law when the Spirit has been given? This grace, the giving of the Spirit, does not merely ask us to abstain from the commands of the old covenant, so stay away from them, but it also quenches them, it gets rid of them, and it leads us on to a higher rule of life. Now Paul, so that's, that's the first thing to remember, and I, want, I hope that everyone can remember that, because it is foundational to true freedom uh, in Christ, that you understand that you really are free, that you really are free, you're not bound by the law anymore, so don't go back there. Don't put yourself like a hamster in the hamster wheel and start treading the treadmill to try and achieve the commandments of the law because it doesn't work that way and it is like slavery. That's the first point. But Paul has another aspect in mind here when he says you're called to be free. He says don't use your freedom to indulge in the sinful nature or the flesh, rather serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. So we see it's clear here, I believe, that Paul agrees with me here, that we're no longer under any law of the Old Testament, including the Ten Commandments. That's why Paul says this, because his, his readers in Galatia could think, okay, we're free, that means we can do anything we want. We're no longer bound by any commandments. And that's why Paul has to explain here what he means. He says, but don't use this freedom to indulge your sinful nature. Um, that is, indulge here, I wrote down, the meaning is to yield to the desire of your sinful nature, to yield to the, the desire of your flesh. So don't use the freedom you have, basically, to be all concerned and to take care of yourself, rather... Serve one another in love. That's how Paul wants us to use the freedom we have in Christ. Serve one another in love. And that's, that's valid for the worldwide church, but it's valid for each individual church and each individual congregation. And so that would be my encouragement to you right now, tonight. This is Church at Five. It's what you make it. It's what you make it. You can right now make the decision, I believe, aided by the Holy Spirit to say, I'm going to invest, as long as I come to this service, as long as I'm here in Freiburg working or studying, to serve my fellow believers, my fellow Christians here at Church at Five in love. Use your freedom, the freedom that you have in Christ, to serve these guys here in love. And Paul 
goes on to say the entire law is in fact summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. So, let me um, read to you another quote as we finish this first point. The whole work of the law is fulfilled by this one command, love. For the person who loves another person, he neither murders, nor commits adultery, nor steal. Now Paul himself adds another text, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But we ought to take this to understand by neighbor every human being, and then constantly view Christ as our neighbor. And you too must love one another, but in the spirit. That's a pretty old commentator, like 1,500 years old. So that, why, that might be why the, the sentence structure sounds a bit strange in English. But I think you can see the point he's getting at, the point that Paul is getting at here. You've been completely freed from the slavery of the law. Don't use this freedom now to indulge in the desires of your sinful nature. And we'll see what those desires are in just a moment. But instead, love one another. Serve one another in love. Because remember, that's, that was the whole point of the command, love your neighbor as yourself. And I find it great that he says, it's such a good thing, I think, to, to decide, or as he writes here, that we're going to understand by neighbor every human being, so not just the ones at church at five and not just the ones in the church and not just Christians, but every human being, no matter what country they're from, no matter what faith they have, no matter what background they have, we'll understand them all as our neighbor and then we'll constantly view Christ as our neighbor. That means that as we engage with any individual human being, we're projecting into them Christ. That as we minister to them, as we serve them in love, we're ministering to, we're serving Christ. And that fits in so well with what Jesus himself says in Matthew 25, when he talks about the sheep and the goats. Where he says, whatever you did for one of these little ones, whether it was you gave a cup of water or provided shelter or visited him in prison, you did it to me, Jesus says. So I encourage you, make that your um, goal this year to see in every person your neighbor and then to see in that person Christ and then to minister to Christ in love. Use your freedom to do that. Point two, live by the Spirit, 16 through 18. I'll just read the verses to you again. So Paul says, So I say, don't keep biting and devouring each other, or watch out, you'll be destroyed. Instead, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature, or the flesh in some translations. The word in Greek there is flesh, but it doesn't mean the physical body. It means, as it's given to us here, the sinful nature of humanity. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. That means what's against the Spirit. And the Spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. So Paul has already contrasted in chapter 4 that having the Spirit is a mark of our freedom. That having the Holy Spirit, being given the Spirit, is a mark, a sign of our freedom 
in Jesus Christ. And so he says here, he continues the argument, you're called to be free, be free by living by the Spirit. Live according to the mark, the sign that you have been given, that you are really free in Jesus Christ. And you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. I think this verse 16, to be honest, is a verse in which much significance is hidden and requires much searching of heart and pondering of mind to fully understand the glorious truth that Paul is writing about here. I want to understand this truth, not merely intellectually understand it, but I desire, and I hope you do too, that this truth here be your daily experience. Be your daily experience that you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And I think for many of us, we're a long way from that. And I include myself in that. I often find myself gratifying the desires of my sinful nature. As in, that means giving in to sin, giving in to selfishness. But I desire to live by the Spirit and not do that. So the Spirit is an indication that we're no longer under the law, that we're no longer a slave, that we have freedom. And this is, the, um, this is the, maybe the paradox here, that you think, okay, this sounds like a war. War isn't good. But interestingly, the very fact that there's a conflict here shows that we're no longer slaves. When we were slaves to sin or slaves to the law and didn't have the Spirit in us, there wasn't any conflict. There wasn't any conflict in us. There wasn't any working of the Spirit in us to empower us to choose the things of God or to choose the good or not to choose the things of our sinful nature or to deny the cravings and the lusts of our flesh. But now that we are free, now this war rages in us. I have to say that to you, if you are ever concerned whether or not you belong to Jesus Christ, whether or not you really are His child, the evidence of a war against sin in your life is strong evidence that you do belong to Him. Because those who don't belong to Him show no evidence of this war. It's not being fought because the Spirit is not in them. So be thankful if in you, you sense that the Spirit rages or struggles against the flesh. So that's the second thing. And I'm sure, I'm sure Brandon will say a little bit more about that next week. But I just wanted to make that point, uh, he'll make that point, um, explain that point a little further, what it means to live by the Spirit. But I just wanted to make that point to you very clearly, this conflict this conflict in us is a good thing. It shows that the Spirit of God is at work in us. Before we were Christians and we were dead in our sin, Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 2, we had no desire for God. That means whenever we were confronted with a choice, we would always choose what most satisfies us, what most gratifies us. And in our sinful nature, that is always to choose against God. It's never to choose, yes, I want to submit my life to God, the righteous Lord of the universe. And in our sinful nature, it's always, no, I want to um, realize my own self, my own life, my own desires. So we would always choose away from God. When the Spirit is now given to us and we're given a new heart, we become a new creature in Jesus Christ we have the Spirit working in us, ministering to us, empowering us to choose 
the things of God, to choose the other, to choose instead of gratifying ourselves and our own desires, we can serve and minister to others, we can love God. And that is the great fight that I'm sure every one of you here knows about. You know about that from your daily life. For some people, it's maybe a little voice in their head or a little conversation you have with yourself where you think, hmm, this is what I should do. This is what God's Spirit is calling me to do and this is what I feel attracted to do based on um, serving my own interests and my own selfishness. That's how this battle looks. But I just want to say it is so rewarding if you listen to the Spirit and if you choose God, if you choose the things of God and not the things of the sinful nature. We just want to walk through what those things are as we get into point three now. In verse 19 through 21, I'll read them to you. The acts of the sinful nature, says Paul, are obvious. Obvious. So he says he means perhaps that they are known to everybody, Christian and non-Christian alike, because they are so self-evidently bad and abhorrent. So much so that even those who do these things desire to hide their deeds. I certainly think that's true for many people, perhaps not true for everyone. So let's see what these obvious things are. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. And Paul concludes, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I just want to go through each of those things. It's, it's funny that written together, the, this just sounds like a catalogue of, yeah, that, that's terrible stuff. But individually in our lives, it's so often the case that we can make excuses for one or another of these things or we don't identify them for what they really are. The acts of the sinful nature. So obvious. So Paul starts out here with sexual immorality sexual immorality. The word in, in Greek refers to all kinds of um, sexual activity outside the bounds of marriage, as God has ordained marriage between a man and a woman, to the exclusion of all others, for life. So that's what Paul is talking about. Paul is, not, Paul is very aware of what life is like amongst human beings in society. He wasn't some guy who lived out in the desert and as a hermit and didn't come into contact with cities or people. He was well-traveled in the Greco-Roman world, the world of Greece and Rome around the Mediterranean. He knew about how Greek society functioned, how Roman society functioned. And it's against that backdrop that he writes these, this list. The people in Galatia would have been from many different tribes and nations, Greeks, Romans as well as Lydians, Persians, Jews, of course, all together in this church. And so he's speaking with this list against sins of the society of his time. Sins of the society of his time, which, if we're honest with ourselves, are the same sins of our society in our time. So, if you, just want, if you want to talk to me about any one of these sins afterwards, 
I'm happy to do that, but I'm just going to go through and I just be, be praying that the Holy Spirit would be convicting you if this is a sin in your life and you need to deal with it. So sexual immorality, all, um, all sexual activity outside the bounds of heterosexual monogamous marriage. Impurity and debauchery. Debauchery is... Debauchery is... Um, do we all know what that word means? No. It means living a, a life um, not according to um, the, the, morals of, the, the morals of well of good upstanding civility is really what it's referring to. So in different societies it can have different uh, meanings. But it can be anything from... Well, or another, another way of, of describing it, so that's the one, one thing, there's a, there's a civil standard in society that people are expected to live up to. And if you don't live up to that, you can be said to be living a debauched life. The other, the other way of approaching it is to say that uh, debauchery is similar to hedonism. That is to merely live for the cause of your own pleasure. So whatever brings you personally pleasure, whether that brings other people pleasure or whether that harms other people, is a debauched way of living. That's what Paul is talking about here. Idolatry and witchcraft are the next ones. Idolatry and witchcraft. Idolatry is really being involved in any worship of any other being than the one true God as revealed as Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you do not worship God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, then you are in idolatry. That might mean for us that we're involved in different philosophies, or different systems of thought which go against the revelation of God in the scriptures and in the church. Witchcraft is deliberately opening yourself up to communication with spirits and with the dead. That is what witchcraft is. So if you deliberately do that, either because you think it's harmless and you play the games that are available out there that seek to uh, communicate with spirits or have the spiritual realm manipulate the game or whether you consult with people who claim to be able to communicate with spirits such as mediums or whether you do that yourself, that is idolatry and witchcraft. And I have to say our society is full of idolatry and witchcraft and it's getting worse every year and most of this I don't mean to be alarmist about this. Most of this is presented in media as harmless fun. Hatred speaks for itself. We should not be involved in hating other people, whether or not they're in our own families or in our own churches or far away on the other side of the world who we see on the news. We should not hate. Discord. Discord means it's the opposite of concord. It's the opposite of living in peaceful harmony with people. But it's not merely the absence of peace, which may sometimes come about because of uh, a valid need to separate, to go a different way. But discord is deliberately preventing the, um, preventing the, the, the state of peace or harmony, st- stirring up dissension, strife, um, anger between people, that is what discord is. And you'll know, I believe, if, if that's something that you are engaged in, whether it's here 
at church or whether it's at your workplace, kind of talk behind people's backs, sowing rumours, all that kind of thing, discord. Jealousy. Jealousy, Paul also mentions envy in the next verse. So I just want to quickly say, I think we can talk about two things here with jealousy and envy. Jealousy is, um, is having negative thoughts towards another person about what that person might accomplish or do or have where you think, I wanted that. I wanted to be there. I, I should be honoured with that position, with that promotion, with that honour, with that relationship. Envy is when you envy another person for what they have. It might be an object that you covet. Fits of rage, it says here. Fits of rage are also acts of the sinful nature. Relatively clear, I think, what that means for us. But you do not want to be living a life that is characterised by sustained, regular anger. Anger that you are unable to control. Anger, rather, that controls you. A big one here, selfish ambition. This is probably a really big one. We often tend to focus on the sexual immorality. Maybe you, that's the cliche you have of Christians that are always on about sexual sin. Well, selfish ambition is a big one. A lot of us, if we're honest with ourselves, are much more concerned about, especially in a university town like Freiburg, where a lot of our thoughts are geared towards, I'm going to study this and then I'm going to have a career there. That's selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. Wanting basically to promote yourself, to assure your own future, your own goals, your own dreams. Without serving others, without ministering to others and without submitting to the call of God. Dissensions, factions, Paul mentions next. Factions are creating different parties in order to uh, attempt to seize power or control, to control over other people, power over other people that you then... um, that, yeah, that you then begin to crush them in the way that you exercise influence over them. And factions are designed by their very purpose to fight against each other for control of a movement or a church or a body politic or a parliament. We see factions in politics. That's, not to be, that's definitely to be expected, but we shouldn't see them in churches or in families or in the lives of Christians. And dissensions, again... Similar, perhaps, to discord and factions, it's um, willfully, dissensions here is willfully disagreeing with, um, with the community or with the leadership, okay? So, I, I, there's not enough time to get into everything here. Obviously, there are reasons to separate from a group or to leave a church if things go in a bad direction, if the leadership are no longer accountable to the Word of God and to... The, the, the orthodox teaching of the church. But dissensions is willfully refusing to follow a church leadership or in the family, the leadership of your parents or the community decision in order to create discord. Drunkenness, orgies and the like. Drunkenness again speaks for itself. This is not a prohibition on Christians drinking alcohol but it is a prohibition on drunkenness, being drunk. This refers to when you drink so much alcohol, and I think we could extend it to any other drug, that you are no longer master of your body and your, and your words and your mind, but the, you are under the influence of the drug to such a degree that you're no longer in control of your body. Orgies and the like. Orgies, 
Paul here is referring to the, um, the sexual practices of the Greco-Roman world. He's basically talking about what we would today might term group sex, which also falls under the prohibition at the beginning of sexual immorality and the like, Paul concludes. He could go on, but he doesn't. So I just, I just ask you to take a moment and just think about whether any of those characterize your life. And I want to say that carefully to you. Characterize your life. That is what Paul is talking about here. I want you to be, um, yeah, I want you to be a little bit scared here when Paul says, I warn you, as I did before, perhaps when he visited them, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if this is what your life looks like, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You are deceiving yourself if you think that you are a follower of Christ. That is the word of warning here. That is the word of warning. But I just want to explain, Paul is talking here about these things characterizing our life characterizing our life. So being a pattern of behavior that we see again and again in our lives and the way we live. He's not talking about um, sin, where we fail, where we fall, where we ask for forgiveness, and where we get up and repent and put it behind us and trust in Jesus. He's talking about a pattern of behavior. Indeed, um, let me read here another very ancient commentary on this text. This guy writes, Since God is righteous, such people as do these things, as a pattern of life, do not obtain the kingdom of heaven so long as they do such things. But since God is merciful, if they cease doing these things and turn to God in humble um, repentance, they do without doubt obtain the kingdom of God. I can only say to that, Amen. Anybody who repents of this lifestyle, or repents of a lifestyle engaging in these things and trusts in Jesus Christ that those sins of committing these deeds have been nailed to the cross, that Christ Jesus has paid the full penalty, then you will most certainly be forgiven. You will most certainly receive the Spirit of God. You will most certainly receive the righteousness of Christ and you will most certainly obtain the kingdom of God. We must remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthians he gave them a similar list and he said, I warn you that those who do, not, uh, who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, and such were some of you. Some of you Corinthian Christians, you did this, you lived like this. But you were washed clean, Paul says. So I'd like to conclude now just by skipping ahead to one verse or a couple of verses to 24. This is our goal that we want to set before us. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. That's our goal. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature. So put it to death with all its passions and desires. And that's where we want to be heading in our lives. I just want to finish with um, one quote and then an encouragement to you. This quote says, the whole essence of the gospel is, a th- is to think according to the Spirit, to live according to the Spirit, to believe according to the Spirit, 
to have nothing of the flesh in one's mind and acts and life. That means also having no hope in the flesh. So walk then, Paul says, in the spirit. That is, be alive. And if you do so, you will not consummate the desire of the flesh. That's what I think it means to say those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. That we we want to think according to the Spirit, live according to the Spirit, believe according to the Spirit, have nothing of the flesh in our mind or acts or life and having no hope in the flesh. Such a key point. We often have so much hope in the flesh, we think that if we do this thing, if we do this sin, it will make us happy. It will bring us forward. It will give us pleasure and that is wrong. We want to have no hope in that kind of thing. So we want to walk in the Spirit. And we'll, as I say, learn more about what that means next week. So I'll ask Yanis to come back up now and we'll sing a final song. But before we do, I just, I just beg of you two minutes of your time now. If we just want to be silent before God and if any of these... Um, if any of these things, if the Holy Spirit has convicted you of them as you've been listening, then I'd encourage you to pray right now, to go before our faithful God who says, if any will confess their sins, then I am faithful and I will forgive you. So do that now and then we'll sing a final song to confess the faith that we have. And again, if, you have, if any of you would like to speak to me afterwards, speak to Brandon or Bex or Yanis, and please be welcome to do so. Amen.